Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day for the 52nd time, I think, in this service. Great to see so many dads. I agree with the other guys who are here. It's wonderful to see dads, to see fathers in church on Father's Day. And uh, what a blessing to have all of you men here with us this morning as we consider Psalm 25, a great psalm of a great man, King David. And the psalm really presents us with an important question as it begins, and it's a question related to life experience. And I will ask the question, have you ever faced a challenge in your life that was so great that you were overwhelmed with anxiety and you didn't know what to do? It was some sort of a challenge, something that was in front of you, and you were stressed by it. You were, again, just overwhelmed with anxiety, and you were not certain how to navigate it, how to move forward. Maybe it was a financial challenge that you were facing. Uh, Maybe it was the loss of a job or a transition of a career and you didn't know how to navigate that initially and you were stressed by that. Perhaps it was in the family. It was a marriage crisis. Perhaps you and your spouse felt like the two of you were at a crossroads and you didn't know how to move forward. You didn't know if you could move forward together. Maybe it's trouble with your children that you've gone through a season, or perhaps you're in a season right now, and you can't for the life of you understand what your children are thinking or why they're doing what they're doing right now. You're trying to get to the bottom of that. Maybe it was betrayal from a friend, somebody that you trusted, somebody that you loved, or a business partner who turned against you and turned other people against you. Or maybe it was a church that you were a part of that was in crisis, maybe even the church split and you were just at a loss. What is going on? Lord, how do I navigate this? How do I move forward? In this psalm, Psalm 25, we find David, the great king of Israel, in a place where his heart is brimming over with anxiety. He tells us as much in verse 17. The troubles of my heart, he writes, are enlarged. His his anxiety, his stresses, these stressors that are coming in on him are causing the troubles that are already in all of our lives to now take on even greater magnitude. He is overwhelmed with anxiety. And so he says in that verse, bring me out of my distresses. And so like the man of God that David is, he brings this anxious heart and this troubled mind to the Lord in prayer, his great counselor. Philippians 4, 6 famously tells us that when we are filled with anxiety, we should pray. We should bring our request to the Lord. Here's Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now Psalm 25 shows us what a prayer in a time of anxiety might look like. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. Before walking through the 22 verses of Psalm 25, I just want to point out for us several interesting features of Psalm 25. The first is this, Psalm 25 is one of the nine acrostic psalms throughout the Psalter. There are nine of these in total. An acrostic is a poem in which the first letter of each line, taken all together, forms a recognizable pattern. And so in the Psalter, all of the acrostic psalms actually begin 
with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and work their way through the Hebrew alphabet. So if Psalm 25 was written in English in its original composition, the lines would go from A all the way to Z, and each line would begin with another letter. And so that would be a pattern that the poet would use. It's called an acrostic. Now, as an acrostic, the reason why I bring this up is this reminds us or it alerts us as readers to the fact that this prayer, Psalm 25, is a thoughtful prayer. It's a carefully constructed prayer. It's a well-crafted piece of poetry. That's the type of prayer that this is. And that reminds us that not all prayer is spontaneous or off the top of our head. That there is a place for careful, considerate, thoughtful prayer. Even writing our prayers out, a lot of Christians throughout the church's history have found journaling their prayers to be a wonderfully helpful practice where you sit down and you actually write out a prayer. As you do that, it allows you as a believer, to construct a prayer and offer a prayer to the Lord that has deeper clarity, perhaps, more depth and more breadth as you bring your prayer to the Lord. This also reminds us that prescripted prayers, which sometimes people pray in public, maybe because they're nervous or because they want to make sure that they say all that they want to say on a subject, this reminds us that there's nothing wrong with prescripted prayers. Sometimes when somebody reads a prayer publicly, we can almost feel like, well, this is less spiritual than an extemporaneous prayer or a prayer off of the top of somebody's head, but that's certainly not necessarily true. Prescripted prayers can be very sincere and can be very worshipful and can do a great job of expressing uh, our desires and our needs with, again, greater clarity and depth and breadth. Another interesting point in Psalm 25 is that this psalm is written later in David's life. He's not a young man here. We're tipped off with a clue in verse 7, where David says in verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth. So David is further along in life now as he constructs Psalm chapter 25. And finally, typical of many of David's prayers, we see that he has enemies that are present here in Psalm 25. But unlike many of the other prayers we've studied so far in the Psalter where enemies are present, what is lacking in Psalm 25 are the pleas of innocence and the cries for justice from David as he constructs this prayer. You'll remember in some of the other prayers where he has enemies surrounding him, he argues with God in his prayer life like this. He says, Lord, Declare me innocent or deliver me because I haven't done the things that these enemies of mine are claiming that I've done. He doesn't say anything like that in Psalm chapter 25. What that means is that David is incapable of taking the moral high ground here and saying, Lord, don't listen to what my enemies are saying. These things are not true. No, actually what they're saying about David is true. He's guilty of the things that they're accusing him of. And so rather than pleas for justice and pleas of his own innocence, rather, all we find from David in Psalm 25 is him appealing to God's mercy. Where else can we go when we are, in fact, guilty of wrongdoing? We have to throw ourselves on the mercy of Almighty God. And David does that, and guess what? When he does that, he finds that God extends mercy to him. With all of these things to consider, we can begin to ask ourselves, is there a possible life setting 
in David's life that we can locate the construction of Psalm 25 to. Now, I'll tell you what, most modern commentators are very shy in trying to place Psalm chapter 25 into a period in David's life. They say, look, there's just not enough information to be, to be sure. Um, there's no superscript that says that this was at this point in David's life, and so we should try not to locate this anywhere in David's life. But I think that there's reason to believe that it could have been constructed, this is speculation, but that it could have been constructed after David's son Absalom rebelled against him toward the end of his life. Again, there's no way to know this for sure, but locating it at that point would make tremendous sense out of what we find in Psalm 25. Now, I can either show you the reasons why I think that, or I can just point out to you that Spurgeon thinks this is possible, and that should be good enough for anyone here this morning. It's been said that if you want to win a biblical argument with most Christians, just start your sentence like this. Spurgeon said, and it's over. They're just going to concede the argument to you. I will point out throughout the teaching this morning why I think this probably was constructed after Absalom's rebellion. The structure of the psalm goes like this. There are several petitions that David asks for, several requests that he brings to the Lord in Psalm 25, but also interspersed in the prayer, David does have two sections where he pauses for meditation, where he's not directly asking God for something. Instead, he's speaking truth to God that he's meditated on in his heart, and so we're going to follow that flow throughout. So petition number one comes from verses one through three. Simply put, David's request here, his petition to the Lord is, deliver me. Deliver me. At the outset, in verses 1 and 2, David here is going to demonstrate for us a posture of trust in the Lord. Look at verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. David is saying, it's, it's you that I am entrusting my life to. It's you who I'm coming before. You're the one that I trust, Lord. And then he tips us off to the problem that he's facing. He runs the risk of being put to shame by, by his enemies. Now, how would they do that? How would they shame David? Well, the answer is by exulting over him in verse 2 exulting over him or rejoicing over David's downfall. If David can be brought down from his place as the king of Israel, then his enemies who have risen up against him can rejoice over his calamity. And that just reveals to us the treachery of people's hearts. That there are people who rejoice over calamity befalling other people. David points out that their treachery is wanton. They're wantonly treacherous. And that word, and I know this is true because Danny and I looked this up together this week, that word wantonly means that their treachery is deliberate, so it's intentional, and that it's unprovoked. In other words, David didn't do anything to initiate, to directly initiate their treachery against him. And when you think of the story of Absalom, there's nothing that David did there. In fact, Absalom, when he began hatching this plot, comes to his dad and says, hey, I want to go do this thing over here. And David just gives him a blessing. Yeah, go ahead and go do it. Well, the thing that he wanted to go do over here was plot a conspiracy against his own father. And so these people who are against him, they are unprovoked and they're deliberate in their treachery. 
But David knows God. And so David is confident in verse 3 that as he waits on the Lord, he will not be put to shame. Rather, it's these wicked people who are plotting his demise who are ultimately going to be shamed. And the final analysis, Galatians chapter 6 tells us that we do reap what we sow. Now, sometimes in the here and now, it doesn't work out that way, but in the final analysis, those who hope in the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, will never, ever be put to shame. Those who are wantonly treacherous, those who think that they can, uh, whoa, I almost knocked that over, those who think that they can work the system, those who think they can pull, pull the wool over God's eyes, they're the ones who, in the final analysis, will be put to shame. Well, after stating the problem, after declaring his trust in the Lord, and after asking God to deliver him from these treacherous people, now David moves on in his prayer to ask for guidance. After all, if this is composed after Absalom's rebellion, David was certainly at a loss as to what God was doing in his life at that moment. Lord, where do I go? What do I do? What is happening here? How do I handle this? People in my own kingdom, people from my own household have risen up against me. What do I do? And if I do win, what do I do with my son Absalom and the other conspirators? How do I handle this, Lord? He needed God's guidance. And so his second petition in this psalm is simply, guide me. This is a major theme of this psalm. It's in verses 4 and 5, again in 8 through 10, and then again in verses 12 through 14. So prominent is this theme that the English Standard Version of the Bible, which I'm preaching from, titles Psalm 25, Teach Me Your Paths. So this is a prominent idea in this psalm. David needs God's instruction and his guidance. And so in verse 4 he says, To the Lord, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So what do we do as children of God when our world gets flipped upside down? Again, when we're in a situation that doesn't make sense to us, we don't know how to go forward, we're flooded with anxiety, well, what we do is we turn to God in prayer and we seek guidance from the Lord. Now, this presupposes that there is true knowledge that's beyond us. He's saying to the Lord in these verses, he's saying, make me, to, make me to know your paths or your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. So this presupposes, again, that there is knowledge and there is wisdom and there is guidance and instruction to be had that is outside of ourselves. It's God's. It belongs to him. And the only way to get it is to come to him for wisdom and for instruction. The book of James reminds us that when we come to God for wisdom, he's not stingy. When we humble ourselves and we come before him and say, Lord, I need guidance. James tells us he gives it to us liberally. He's not stingy with it. So David, as an older man, comes to the Lord and he asks for guidance. I love this because David had plenty of lived experience. I hate that term because isn't all experience lived? He comes to the Lord though and with all of this life experience that he had, all of it, he still comes to the Lord at this point in his life and he does not act like he's got it all figured out. 
He doesn't just go, oh, I've read the book before. Yeah, yeah, Genesis to Revelation, well, I guess in his day that wouldn't have been true, but I've read it from start to finish. I know it all. Oh, I've led the people of God for many years. I know what I'm doing here. I've raised a family. My kids are out on their own. I've got it all figured out. He's just not there. He, despite being a man after God's own heart, despite being somebody who walked with the Lord from his youth and was an old man, now he's still humble enough to come before the Lord and say, I need you, like the song we sang earlier. Lord, I need you. And dads, I just want to say on Father's Day that this is the sort of posture of a true spiritual leader in their home. That we never arrive, that we never get to the point where we feel like we have it all figured out, but that we're constantly open to the Lord saying, God, I need you. I don't have all the answers. Would you please be so gracious as to guide me and to instruct me and to show me the way that I need to go? David feels this way because he knows that God is the God of his salvation. And if that's true, then why wouldn't David turn to that God at every single juncture throughout his life? He's the God of my salvation. He's the one who saved me. Therefore, I'm going to come to him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 famously tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So he will make straight your paths. But he won't always do it the instant that you ask him to. And so David prays here, for you I wait all the day long. The answer, the clarity, the resolution to David's trial is not instantaneous. He doesn't just say, Lord I need guidance, Lord I need you to deliver me and boom it's done. And sometimes when we are in crisis, again, it could be a family crisis, it could be a relational crisis, it could be a spiritual crisis between us and the Lord. We say, okay, I should pray about this. And we come to the Lord, we offer up a prayer, we say, oh, I need guidance, and we do this trick. Sometimes people do this. Uh, Read one verse. Oh, I didn't get anything out of that. Okay, well, I'll just make a decision. David doesn't do that. He's offering his prayers to the Lord and he's coming to God for guidance. And then he says, and and guess what? I'm going to just wait on you. I don't care how long it takes. He's patiently waiting on the Lord. The key is that he's struggling with God in prayer. So long as we are with God in prayer, struggling, that's the key. Jesus teaches us this much, that we should just keep asking and seeking and knocking until the door is opened for us. There's a persistence in prayer and a patience in prayer that is so critical if we're hoping to have our prayers answered. Well, after asking for God's guidance, David now turns his attention to his own sin. David knows that if he has any hope that God is going to guide him and answer his prayers, He cannot harbor sin in his own heart. Psalm 66, 18 tells us, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And so David's next move is to come and to ask God to forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. Look at verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. 
Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now it's interesting that David here is recalling sins that he had committed in his life many, many years before. Lord, don't remember the sins of my youth. It's possible that David's enemies are throwing his sin in his face as the reason why God is allowing this catastrophe to strike. In fact, when David was fleeing the city of Jerusalem from Absalom, he and his men were accosted by a man named Shimei. And we read about this in 2 Samuel 16. In verse 7 we read, And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. And now listen to Shimei's argument. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. So Shimei thinks that the reason that this happened to David is because David had defeated Saul. He had risen up against Saul and driven Saul out. Now that's not true. That's not the real reason. But it could be that other people were looking at sin in David's life and trying to pinpoint particular sins and say, this is the reason why God's letting this happen to you. In fact, after David's great sin, which was adultery with Bathsheba, and the subsequent murder of her husband Uriah, when Nathan the prophet confronts David, listen to the prophecy that he gives to David. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12, 10 and 11. David says that, or, uh, Nathan says this to David. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from where? Out of your own house. I wonder if some of David's accusers are looking this man in the face as he's in the greatest trial of his life. He's running for his life and they're saying, this is exactly what Nathan said would happen to you. You thought God was just going to ignore that sin? You thought God was going to let something like that go? No, 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 no. God is bringing the whole house of cards down right now. You're done. And Absalom is going to take over. And so David here, in this moment of prayer, he comes to the Lord and he says, God, be merciful. God, forgive me of my sins. Don't let that be true about me. I don't think it will, but don't let that be true about me. It's crazy how this older man is still haunted by sins that he had committed long ago. Yes, God had forgiven him of the sins of his youth, but that does not mean that there aren't consequences that we can carry throughout our lives. That does not mean that there's not guilt that we still harbor, that we have to process before the Lord. And that doesn't mean that our sins that we have committed don't still impact relationships that matter to us. Right after David committed that great sin, just think of the impact on his family, his son that he had with Bathsheba, through their adultery, his, his infant son died. Not only that, but one of his daughters, Tamar, was raped by her half-brother. Not only that, her full brother, Absalom, murdered his half-brother who had raped his sister. And then, of course, not only that, but Absalom, later in his life, rises up and rebels against 
his own father. And so you tell me, you don't think that David, as an older man, is still haunted by those sins of his youth? As he looks at the destruction that it's brought to the people that he loves the most? Of course he was. I remember a number of years ago, I was back in Pennsylvania, and I was in a car ride with my grandfather. And I've never been really, really close to my grandfather. We have a great relationship, but he's always just lived really far. But we were driving, and we were on a long trip together, a couple-hour drive, and we just started talking about life. And I was driving his car, and he's talking to me, and all of a sudden, he got really choked up. And he started telling me about the greatest regret of his life. And with tears coming down his face, he looks at me in the car, and he says, my greatest regret of my life was that I didn't make it work with your grandma. Now, after he divorced my grandmother, he got remarried, and he's had a wonderful marriage for 40 years. But here he is at the end of his life, and he's crying, and he's saying, that's the greatest regret of my life. And he followed that statement up by saying this to me. He said, because I missed out on being able to be present with my three sons during the most important years of their life. I thought, wow, that's so heavy. A man who's been incredibly successful, who does have a relationship with his kids, but he's haunted by something that he did 40 years ago, 50 years ago almost. What a warning to those who are young here today. When we're young, we just think, oh, none of this is going to matter. I'm just going to do what I want right now. I'm going to get what I want. This is the thing that I desire. I don't care about the consequences. God will even forgive me if you're raised in the church. A lot of us think that way. Oh, even if I do this thing, God will forgive me someday. Yeah, that's true. God can forgive you if you come to your senses and you repent of your sin and you turn to Christ. But don't think that you might not live with tons of regret as you look at the consequences from your actions. So David prays here, don't remember my sin, but please, Lord, remember me. And why should God do this? Answer, not because of David's goodness, but because of God's. He says, because of your goodness, O Lord. But a great reminder that God does not forgive us because we're good. He forgives us because he's good. And we can never get that twisted. It's because he is good. David's prayer now at this point shifts into a period of meditation. In verses 8 through 10, he says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David, at this point in his prayer, he has to remind himself of some truths about God to shore up his heart. He must have been feeling overwhelmed. And this is such a great insight into prayer. A lot of times we oversimplify prayer. And we say this is how we communicate with God. God speaks to us here in the Bible. And then in prayer, we speak to God. Now that's true. God speaks to us in the Bible. And in prayer, we do speak to God. However, prayer is more than just one-way communication. In prayer, God is communicating with us if we are a people who are patient enough and willing and open enough to sit quietly before the Lord and meditate and allow the Spirit of God to bring the truth of God to bear on the situation that we're going through. This is what happens sometimes in prayer. 
we're sitting there and we're pouring out our heart to the Lord and we just pause and we just think. We just open our hearts before the Lord and we're silent. And the Spirit begins to bring things to our attention and to our heart that comfort or guide or direct. This is what happens, and David here meditates now on the character of God. He says that God is good, and God is upright, and therefore God instructs sinners in the way that they should go. David does not need to worry about God, whether God is going to answer the prayer of verses 4 and 5, this prayer to give him guidance, because he knows what kind of person God listens to and God guides. Notice the descriptors of the kind of person who receives God's guidance. In verse 8, it's sinners. In verse 9, twice, it's the humble. This is the kind of person that God will instruct, that God will guide. And the reason for this is simple. The proud, the arrogant, cannot be taught anything. Right? They feel like they have it all figured out. They don't have a posture of humility and openness to learn or receive instruction. But David is humble and he's open and he's teachable. 1 Peter 5, 5 reminds us that we need to clothe ourselves, all of you, myself included, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so David now comes to the Lord, and he's coming in this posture of humility and utter dependence on God, looking to the Lord for deliverance, looking to the Lord for guidance, looking to the Lord for forgiveness and mercy. And David remembers that all of the paths of the Lord, every path that he takes his children on, are paths that are filled with God's love and God's faithfulness. Even this one that he's on right now. Think about that. He's able to say, even in this moment, that all of the paths of the Lord are filled with God's love and God's faithfulness. This takes on such pregnant meaning in light of the context of this psalm. David is saying there's only good paths if you belong to the Lord. This is a Romans 8.28 kind of verse, right? Romans 8.28 says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is a Genesis 50.20 kind of verse. Remember at the end of Joseph's story, his brothers who had betrayed him come before him and they think that Joseph is about to just execute them or throw them into prison but Joseph has a different perspective he says as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today David is able to look at every season of his life and say I don't know how but somehow God will bring good out of even this great calamity well after strengthening his heart by being reminded of these truths David asks for forgiveness a second time Perhaps it was the end of verse 10 that brought his own failings back to his mind. At the end of verse 10, he says that the promises there in verse 10 are for those who obey God's laws. And yet David knows as he looks at his own life, I have not perfectly obeyed God's laws. And so in verse 11, he asks again for forgiveness. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Now notice that David does not here minimize his sin. He says that it is great. My guilt is great. I've been a massive sinner. He doesn't say, oh, God, would you please pardon my mistake? Would you please pardon my momentary indiscretion? My slight 
lapse of judgment. He's not trying to gloss over this. He's honest before the Lord, and he understands how significant the sins of his life are. And this is the sort of self-awareness that we need to have when we come to the Lord in prayer. He says, it is great. And because of that, he once again does not ask for God's pardon based on his own merit or his own goodness or his own sake. Instead of saying, I deserve it, he says, would you pardon me for your name's sake? David knows that every time that God pardons a sinner, somebody who does not deserve mercy and forgiveness, what it does is it showcases God's mercy and his kindness and his faithfulness and his love for undeserving people. And so David's saying, Lord, let's do that again. Can you, can you make me an object that displays your grace and your compassion on undeserving people? And family, as Christians, we know just like David knew thousands of years ago that our sin is not a deal breaker for having a relationship with God. That we don't have to look at our sin and go, well, there's no hope for me. Look at the terrible things that I've done. You know, again, today's Father's Day, and we prayed for fathers here, but for some fathers here, there might be a sadness today. There might be a lot of regret as you look back and go, I didn't do all that I should have done. Or maybe I even made some massive mistakes. And maybe everything we're doing here this morning up to this point just feels like a dump truck of condemnation being dumped on you. I'm not that guy. I can't live up to this. God could never, hey, listen. Your sin is not a deal breaker for having a relationship with God. So long as, like David, we turn to God and put our trust solely in him and we look to his mercy, which was displayed at Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago when his own son died to remove our sin and we say that is the only hope that I have of being forgiven. We don't look to our own righteousness. We don't look to our own effort. We don't look to our ministry or our service for God. None of that can help us to measure up. None of that gives us access to God, but a humility that says, I have sinned and my sin is great. And then a trust that says, but you are a greater savior still. When we come that way, we get mercy. And this is the good news of the Bible. After asking for this pardon, David once again returns to a second meditation on truths that he knows about God. This is in verses 12 through 15. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. And then he says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. In verse 12, notice now that David adds another descriptor to the kind of person that God receives and that God gives guidance to. Remember in verses 8 and 9, it was to sinners. It was to the humble and to the humble a second time. And now in verse 12, David says, oh, and also, here's another descriptor. It's for those who fear the Lord. This is the person who lives with a proper awe and reverence and fear before the Lord. It would, it would sound something like this in your heart. He's the creator, I'm not. Therefore, he's the boss, I'm not. Therefore, he calls the shots, I don't. He's in charge, 
I just listen. I just get in line and obey. David says, hey, that kind of a person is the kind of person that God says, okay, I'll teach you some things. This is what Proverbs famously says in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So long as we think that maybe we're on equal ground with God and we can bargain with God and we can argue with God or we can say, hey God, I like this stuff and I'm going to follow that. This stuff, not so much. I'm going to do my own thing. God will look at you and say, you're a fool. You're proud. You'll never receive anything from me. But when we finally get to that place of awareness that we are creatures, we're just dust. He's the creator. That's the starting point for wisdom and knowledge. And then a related idea in the Bible is that, yes, we're dust, but guess what? We're beloved dust. And therefore, we have so much value, so much worth in God's eyes. And that causes our hearts to be hearts that say, Father, teach me, lead me, guide me. I want to know you. In verse 13, we learn that the person who fears the Lord, who lives with this posture, guess what? They abide in They live in well-being. They live in the good land. Not Goleta, but the good land nonetheless. They live in the place of God's blessing. And not only that, but their children dwell in a place of blessing with them. Verse 14 basically makes the same point as verse 12. Those who fear the Lord receive his instruction and guidance. The only difference now in verse 14 is that it carries the nuance of an intimate relationship, right? It says in verse 14 that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The New International Version translates this, the Lord confides in those who fear him. The Lord confides in, he shares his secrets specifically about the covenant, about what it means to have relationship with God. He gives that kind of insider information to those who fear him. And of course, we only confide in people that we trust. We only confide in people that we have an intimate relationship with. And so, again, there's this idea here that for those who fear the Lord, we have an intimate and close and friendly relationship with God, and we have access to his truth and his direction. In other words, we have a path toward blessing. Because of this, David is not willing in his life, and I hope we're not willing in our lives, To turn to the right hand or the left hand. No, he says in verse 15, My eyes are ever toward the Lord. That's it. I'm not looking to the left. I'm not looking to the right. I'm not placing my hope on anything or anyone else. My eyes are on him. My hope is in him. My trust is in him. Period. That's where blessing is found. That's the path. I'm not going to get off of it. This is the complete posture of the wisdom literature of the Bible. He knows in verse 15 that God is the only one who can save him from the enemy's nets and their traps. And that conclusion there in verse 15 brings David's mind back to the current crisis. There's nets, there's traps, there's enemies. And so all of a sudden he begins to petition the Lord again. He says in verses 16 and 17, turn to me, turn to me. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. As David fled the city of Jerusalem, he must have felt very lonely. Family members had rebelled, close friends and advisors, military personnel. 
had turned against him. People that he had trusted, people that he had blessed, and he probably felt, he, he did feel, because he expresses it here, that even God's presence had been withdrawn from him for some reason. Lord, turn to me now. I'm, I'm lonely. I'm afflicted. This crisis has multiplied his anxiety, as I said earlier in verse 17. And I love this passage because it's so insightful. And, and it's, it's so affirming of our humanity. Because it shows us that there's a difference between what we know and how we feel. David knows. He's saying it over and over again. He knows God hasn't really left him. He knows that God loves him. He knows that God forgives him. He knows that God will guide him. He knows all these things to be true. But at the level of experience and how he feels right now, he's skeptical, he's questioning, he's doubting. He's feeling at a loss. And I just love how this gives us permission in our lives and in our prayer lives to say, Lord, I, I believe certain things here at the level of my head, but I just can't, I can't touch them at the level of my heart yet. Can you help me, Lord? Will you turn to me? Will you meet me here now and help my theology to move 18 inches from my brain down to my heart so that it takes hold of me, so that my experiences come into alignment with my ideas and my beliefs about you? I love this passage. Next, David says, consider me, Lord. This is verses 18 and 19. He feels abandoned. He's overwhelmed with anxiety. So he just says, God, just, just consider where I'm at. I'm at a low point, Lord. Consider me, my affliction and my trouble. And then in verse 19, he says, and while you're considering me, can you think about my enemies too and where they're at? There's tons of them. There's many of them. And they're vicious. They fiercely hate me. They want to do me harm, Lord. Consider where I'm at. I'm lonely, I'm isolated, I'm broken, I don't have it all figured out, and consider where they're at. They're proud, they're attacking me, they're mocking me, and they're trying to take my life. Would you please consider these things? And then for a third time, at the end of verse 18, he asks for forgiveness of his sins. What is going on? Well, perhaps here, as he's talking to God about the magnitude of his suffering, just maybe David is painfully reminded that to some extent, he's brought these things upon himself. And what a heavy moment that is in our lives when we realize that sometimes when things fall on us, like I was talking about earlier, some of the consequences from our sins are there and we see it and we're painfully reminded of that. We say, oh my gosh, I'm such a sinner. I've failed and I've messed things up. And so he says to the Lord again in his prayer, forgive all my sins. Now, I know this seems repetitive. Why is he asking the same thing over and over again? Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. But isn't the answer that that's exactly what prayer is like? I mean, haven't you ever been praying about something, especially in a time where you're feeling overwhelmed and anxious and you just keep uttering the same sort of thing because that's what really matters most and it's all you can think about? God, please help me. God, please help me. Lord, please help me, help me, help me. And Maybe in a 10-minute prayer, you've asked, help me 35 times. That's what prayer can be like, and that's okay. Well, finally, as we close in verse 20, David comes back around to the request that he started this prayer with. It's a simple prayer. It's guard me, deliver me, so that I will not be put to shame. Why? Because I trust you. It's in you that I take refuge. And with that, as he ends his prayer officially there, 
David knows what his marching orders are. They're to live life with integrity and uprightness and to eagerly wait for the Lord. That's what verse 21 says. David knows that he cannot control when God's going to show up and answer his prayer and deliver him and guide him out of the mess. He can't control that. So he instead chooses to focus on what he can control. I've come to the Lord in prayer like he asks me to. I've humbled myself. I've confessed my sins to God. I've asked for his guidance. And I've asked that he deliver me from my trouble. And so now I'm just going to live with integrity. I'm going to live with uprightness. I'm going to walk in the way that I should go according to God's word. And I'll just wait. What else can I do? I'll just wait and trust that in the waiting, there's going to be a breakthrough. Maybe God delivers me today. Maybe he doesn't. I'll just keep waiting, just keep living faithfully, just keep praying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and in faith, trust that one day that door is going to get kicked open. God is going to show up, and when he shows up, everything is going to be okay. Now, verse 22, let me just say one thing about that, and we'll pray. Either David or perhaps a later editor jots down verse 22, and it's, it's weird because the acrostic, remember I was telling you this is a Hebrew acrostic, kind of A to Z, that ended at verse 21. So verse 22 feels like an add-on. But what happens here is that David, as the king and the representative, re representative of Israel, is reminded that his destruction doesn't just affect him. His destruction actually is the destruction of the whole nation. And in the same way, his deliverance would mean the deliverance for the entire nation. And so David, or again, maybe a later editor, opens up this prayer that was so personal, that was, that was restricted to David. It is now opened up and expanded outward for all of God's people. That as David experiences deliverance, so too would Israel herself receive deliverance from their hour of trial. And in a similar way, our king, the greater David, the King Jesus, when he entered into his great battle, and with, when death seemed to carry the day when he was crucified on that cross 2,000 years ago, when he came through that battle triumphantly afterward on Resurrection Sunday, and he triumphed over sin and death, guess what? His victory was not just his victory. His victory becomes all of our victory who have come to him in faith. And so he becomes the firstborn of many brothers and many sisters who are going to experience that same victory that when we die, our sin is paid for. We don't pay for it anymore. And when we die, death is not the end, but we are raised in the same resurrection life of Christ our King himself. Let's pray together.